Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John Kaplan, and I'm joined today by my great friend, colleague, and great author of the book, The Qualified Sales Leader, Johnny McMahon. Johnny, how are you? Good afternoon, Cap. How are you? Well done. Well done. <laughs> Doing good, buddy. So today, we're going to focus on technical sales and what you can do as, as a sales organization or individuals to better utilize sales engineers to demonstrate customer value and your own solutions differentiation. Joining us is the master at technical sales. He literally wrote the book on it. John Kerr is the co-author of Mastering Technical Sales. He spent numerous years building world-class sales engineering organizations at Oracle, Sybase, Vantiv, Clarify, CA, Business Objects, and HP Software. He has a Bachelor's of Science with Honors in Chemical Engineering from Imperial College London and is a former contributing member of the MBA Advisory Council for the Fox Business School of Temple University in Philadelphia. He has been published in CIO, InfoWorld, Touchline, and The Wall Street Journal. He now serves on the advisory boards of several high-tech startups dedicated to the sales engineering community. So welcome, John Kerr. Awesome to have you on the program today. And uh, uh, Johnny Max, say hello to John Kerr. John Kerr, how are you today? Good to have you. I'm doing fantastic. Thanks, gents. I, I wish I had got the memo about the blue shirts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you got a cooler shirt on. Stay, show show the uh, show that on the video again. That's awesome. Trust your listening seat. by uh, audio only. John's shirt yeah. says, "Trust your se." All right, that's a pretty good way to kick off because um, what I'd like to do is break this conversation down a, a few different ways. We're going to talk about the role of the SE, um, how to best work with SEs, how should sales leaders utilize SEs, and then, uh, John, we want to talk about you know your current company and what you're doing to to really impact uh, impact companies with uh, greater utilization of SE. So why don't we kick it off with, John, if you don't mind, you know, what makes a good SE? Well, well hiring managers have been trying to figure that out for around 50 years. Uh, so I like to break it down to a number of different components. I mean, obviously, one, you need a, somewhat of a technical background, not an absolute requirement, but you need to be able to understand technology. And I say that because in my career, I've you know, I've had anywhere from NASA scientists to Shakespearean scholars become um, sales engineers. So there's a broad range there. So you need the technology. Um, secondly, you, know, you do need some basic understanding of business. So the business drivers, you know, why cost, revenue, risk, things like that are important. Third, you need to be kind of a, a storyteller, an explainer of all things, which is really linking the technology back to the business. Right. So it's no good 
diving into your know, speeds and feeds and features if you can't make that relevant to the people in the room. And then lastly, and this is the piece that's often forgotten, is the, you know, the relationship building piece. And certainly over the last 20 years, and I know we'll dive down into this in more detail in a bit, you know, there has been this, you know, this, this onus, this requirement for the sales engineer to build more and more relationships at different levels within their customers and prospects and become that proverbial trusted advisor. So, so those are the four things to me that have always made a, a great SE. Now, what's the data say about, you shared some data earlier when we were preparing for the call about why the relationship with the SE is so important. Um, and we want to really make a distinction here. We're not saying that that relationship is usurping a relationship of, uh, of a seller, uh, but there's some good data behind why it's important for an SE to have a good relationship with the customer. Could you share that with us? Yeah, absolutely. So a few years ago, we worked with one of our clients, another consulting company, uh, and we we asked the question of who, who, as you go through the sales process, provides the most value to you and your team? And we asked this question of over 9,000 people throughout the world uh, in every single major market except Japan and China. And so we gave we gave people four choices. We can say it's the collateral, you know, so websites, um, Gartner reports. It's the sales team, so the account manager, VP of sales. It's the technical team, the sales engineer, um, you know, or it's executives from the vendor. And we asked that question of middle management, individual contributors, and executives, and broadly by a two-to-one margin, everyone said it is the technical team, the sales engineer, who provides the most value to them and their team. And with value comes trust. And anyone who's been an SE for more than about three months knows there are times the customer will tell you things they would never, ever tell the sales rep. Yeah. And the really good sales reps know that uh, and can leverage that trust. So it's not, as you said, uh, that the SE usurps the relationship status of the rep. It's done in partnership. And whoever is in the best position to build that relationship, uh, forget about titles, at least in you know, the Western world. Um, that's the way it's now done. Yeah, and it really goes back to what you said, John, um, and I'm quoting you here, you know, with value comes trust. So if the SE is bringing the most value in the room, they're going to start to trust them a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not unusual to see, you know, a 27-year-old SE building a relationship with you know, a 52-year-old CTO or CIO if they're in the best position to have that you know, discussion or drive that relationship. It doesn't have to be, you know, executive to executive. You know, it is about value supplied, and that's the. I think that's the key thing that a lot of sales teams don't get. They get locked into you know titles and looking at you know, where the PowerPoint is and the power bar and everything, and they forget about you know, it's still just basic relationship building. And when I think back on you know what makes a good SE, you know, you can have the tech background. I've seen many SEs with that. Many that start to understand the business and the business drivers. And many that really understand their role as trying to build uh, champions with the technology tech people. But the one that really seems to lack the most is, you know, having a really good storyteller. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the importance of SEs being able to tell a story. It, it's critical, as you said, John. Um, so many SEs, particularly the more technically oriented ones, will say, well, wait, no, I don't tell stories. Stories are for salespeople, therefore those people in marketing. 
Um, you know, I, I deal with you know, ADA and boxes and software flows and inputs and outputs, and that's not the case. And I always say, well, of course you talk about stories. You know? I, I bet in the last couple of months you've told a story about that last bug in your code that you couldn't find until three o'clock in the morning and how frustrating it was, or the jerk in the BMW who cut you off in traffic this morning, or the, you know, the cute barista who made you coffee yesterday. You know? They're all stories. Uh, and so being able to harness that and being able to tell just a simple story and make your your software, your hardware come to life in the mind of the buyer is just so critical. You know, and it's one of the things that my company teaches, uh, you know, it's just the basic storytelling, how to you know have a, a hero, a challenge, a villain, a resolution, uh, but put that in technical, technical terms. So it it is kind of one of the lost skills of sales engineering that is is it's, it's a lost skill in sales too, but I think Johnny can uh, testify to this also is people love stories and they remember stories and it. And when I've been in some companies and then I've told a story and then I go back to visit that same company again, you'll get a bunch of people in the audience that say, Hey, can you tell us that story again? Say, so they just love it. And they remember it. There's a, there's a reason for that. Uh, both John's, um, the data just wildly supports this is that people get emotionally connected to good stories. And so if you have the ability to tell a story and you can get the buyer emotionally connected to the story, and it has the ability to get me emotionally connected to some of my challenges and you have solutions for those. And I'm emotionally connected to that. The data just says that you're going to be, um, you're going to, vastly improve your your success your success level definitely i i 80 90 percent of people stories will stick in their brains more than facts and figures and inputs and outputs uh, and as you go higher up the corporate food chain right those stories will resonate and stick better than you know just pure technology I love it, John. But one of the things I've struggled with a little bit in this conversation is what I found is sales engineers, they tend to be engineers. Um, and, uh, you know, it's easier for a seller, I think. I don't want to say this. I don't have the data on this, but it feels for me. It's easier for a seller to be emotional, to get somebody emotionally connected where the SE tends to be more of an engineer, which is more of a linear thinker, which is more of a factual base. And that, and that can be a huge benefit because if an engineer is calling on an engineer and then you have a seller who's telling emotional stories and the emotional stories don't resonate very well with somebody that's technical, could you just give your, could you give your opinion on the balance? Sure. So think about what motivates the majority of engineers. And I'm a, you know, I'm a chemical engineer. I've been in sales engineering for goodness knows how many decades. So this is relevant to me as well. You know, one, we like to solve problems. Right? I mean, nothing makes an engineer happier than to solve a problem. Secondly, we love to help people. We like to make lives better for people, which is generally our customers. Um, and so you know, all that so what's going to light up an engineer is talking about their solution, their service. So you know, even if you're dealing with a, that flat linear engineer, if you ask them to start describing what it is they actually use, what they're demoing, what they're presenting, that's when they're going to light up and that's where the emotion comes in. And that's where together with you know, the emotional side with the rep, if you harness that, I think that's a very, very powerful combination. 
I like that a lot. Um, one of the things that we didn't talk about, you might have mentioned it, but I just want to highlight it. Um, this this attribute of SEs, good SEs, they have this attribute of patience. And I think you both, both you, John Kerr, and you, John McMahon, in John McMahon's book, uh, The Qualified Sales Leader. Uh, and then, John Kerr, give me your book again, please. Mastering Technical Sales. Mastering Technical Sales. In both of those books, there's a really cool concept called slowing down, uh, slowing down to go fast. Can you comment on what you what that means in the area of patience? It It is. Um, if you ask a sales engineer, you know, tell me about your new reverse network osmotic transwarp protocol, right? And they'll immediately just dive in and talk about it, where instead what they need to do is take that step back and say, well, you know, have you implemented reverse osmotic transwarp you know, protocol now, or you know, what are your plans for it? And just to get some more information out of, out of the customer and not just immediately dive into something. So you know, we, we call it the keys to the Lamborghini or you know, the, the Gucci handbag. Um, you know, it's dangling there in front of you, but don't grab it. You need to be patient and always trying to get more information. And, and by doing that slowing down and showing patience, it does actually speed up because it makes your discovery more efficient and more effective. And then what you do after that will go faster. I'd actually say, though, in defense of the majority of SCs versus the majority of salespeople, that typically it's a salesperson that's probably trying to go a little bit too fast, and the SC that's typically trying to slow it down. You know, I, I would absolutely agree with that, John. Um, the the biggest point of friction between sales engineers and account execs is the speed of the transaction, particularly when it relates to discovery. And I can honestly say there's not a sales engineer in the world who would not want to do an extra 30 minutes of discovery in a deal. Whereas most reps is like, okay, you've got it. You've got enough. Let's move to you know the next step and go outbound and present demo whiteboard through the executive connection. So there's always that tension, which I think is good um, because you know the really good teams, you know, the, the SCAE team, you know, they work together and they solve that and they, they end up in the best place for both of them. Yeah, but it's because the SE knows where this thing is going. When they don't do proper discovery, eventually they find themselves given a generalized demonstration and later on doing a POC or a POV, whatever you want to call it, where the rules are not really written. They don't understand really what the criteria is. And that's when, you know, the the white hot spot, spotlight is shining on that SE. And uh, yeah, they know is. that that's where it's going, and that's why they do want to typically slow it down. I mean, in the trade, we call it you know, the dash to demo, the push to present, the pressure to proof of concept. Uh, and you know, one of the most popular workshops that we deliver is called Business Value Discovery. And it's really, you know, we say, you know, you have to paint the target before you can shoot at it. Yeah. So it's no good being able to deliver the demo in the world to do the best whiteboard if you don't actually know what are the customer's problems and what are their hopes and dreams and so that's the important thing one of the things that um i heard you say uh is um and i think this is in your book also is the difference between or or sorry not the difference between but the the relationship between pain with a p is in paul and gain with a G as in go, would you tell me your philosophy on on gain and pain, please? 
<laughs> sure. Um, so yeah, I could talk about this for about six hours. Um, but the executive summary is this: um, everybody in the world, every you know, sales methodology there is, every LinkedIn pundit says, you know, "Find the pain, find the pain, solve the pain, you'll get the deal." And that's great. And you know, most people can find the pain and you can do it maybe a little bit better, a little bit worse than your competition. However, what we've discovered, and this number has remained true over like three decades, is, yeah, 80 percent of deals in technology are driven by pain. There's a problem. It's bleeding. Make it stop. But about 20 percent of deals are driven by gain. You know, a client calls in a puppy dog's unicorn sunsets, walks on the beach. Right. The good stuff that's going to happen in the future. And if you don't look for that gain, then you know, it's really hard for you to differentiate yourself from your competition. And back to your point, John, earlier about the emotional side of the sale, you know, isn't it nice to link your product to an emotional and positive gain they establish mm. from it? And usually it's the sales engineer who's in a better position to ask that question. You know, as in, a, so six months from now, this project's fully implemented. What are some things that you might be able to do that you can't do right now? And that's that's gain. And usually you'll see people's faces light up and they'll pause and they get their head out of the immediate pain and you know, the blood loss. And say, oh, you know, I've got these three projects on the back burner and my boss wants me to do this line of business is asking for this. And then suddenly you found this gain. And it is a very, very powerful driver and a fantastic way to differentiate yourself. So kind of to, to loop all that back, John, I always say, you know, the difference between a good SC and a world-class SC is that they can find the gain. And that extra 20% of deals that they can put in the pipeline to help the AE, uh, you know, more stuff to close, uh, that's what makes the difference. And yeah, it's such a forget it's, about the gain. It's, yes, uh, it's such a great point in, in our language. In my company, we talk about those are the positive business outcomes mm -hmm. that uh that happen because of the solving of the negative consequences of the current state of the pain. And so as we're, as we're talking about this, we're now kind of talking about, we're transitioning from the role of the SE Johnny, if you're ready to do this, you know, if you're not, just let me know. But well, I just wanted to add one comment on to what you, you both were just speaking about. That's also where the storytelling comes into play. Yeah. So if that SE can ask the questions that John described and then when they hear about the future state, then talk a little bit about some stories where there was the before and after scenarios of current customers that have seen similar gains from similar use cases and using the same technology that can also get them to light up also. I like yes, that. There's, yes, the, yes. there's like a, um, what I'm picturing is there's this, there's this operating rhythm in a sales campaign between resources that are calling on a customer and those include, you know, AEs and SEs and, and what have you. And I, I love this concept of there's a, there's a threshold of, and typically the SE can go farther of asking about negative consequences. The SE can take it a little bit more, has a little bit more courage to talk about those negative consequences than the seller does. And then there's this transition. It's kind of like a burning platform and you got them at, okay, I suck. And they need to be able to see how do I embrace the suck and how do I get through the suck and how do I get to a, how do I get to a positive business outcome? And I love that combination. I really want to highlight that for the listeners. Uh, the best sales conversations uh, 
the best sales conversations include pain and gain. One without the other is uh, is not a very successful sales call. So let's talk a little bit about this operating rhythm. We're talking about now the SEs and the AEs and how they best, best work together. And John, you describe it as a, a really a true partnership. Could you could you dig into that a little bit, the ideal kind of partnership? Sure. So the, the best way for AEs to work with SEs is to embrace that view of a partnership. Um, you know, an SE is not a resource. Resources, you know, old sheep, steel, they're people, right? So, you know, they're not a resource. They are a person and they have their utilization within the, the cell cycle. So think of them as a partner with you in the cell cycle. Now, certainly they're the junior partner. You know, I, I talk about a, you know, a 51, 49 relationship. Right? I mean, ultimately the rep has you know, the final call, the final say in strategy. But again, the really smart reps listen to everyone around them, you know, not just their boss, you know, their peers, but also you know, the SE, the SE manager, and formulates a strategy based out of the inputs from those people. Um, if you're an AE who's just you know, the control freak, everything has to go through you, everything has to be done your way, well, you know, good luck with that. Um, there'll be some lone wolves who will be incredibly successful, um, you know, but they're not team players, right? And again, SE's hunt as a pack. Right. Sales reps are mainly lone wolves. Um, SEs yeah. work together as a pack. So, you know, they buy into this collaborative, everybody helps everybody else you know, theory that people have. So I think it's a mindset, you know, it's a mindset that you're going to work with your SE as a, as a partner, as you put it, but a real close teammate. And what I found is that when you're younger in sales, then you think more along the lines of they're just a resource that I grab at certain points of the sales process. And I think the more mature, more experienced sales reps understand how important, how valuable the SC is, and then they closely partner with them throughout the entire sales process. At least that's what I've seen. Yes. Uh, and not every call needs to be the two of you together. Right? No, Sometimes no, not rep, at all. But it doesn't mean that I can't come back and discuss it with my SC, right? Hey, and, I heard let, this. Yeah, what about that? Let the SC do that thing. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, so so Johnny, you and I have experienced in our backgrounds, and we're not going to use any names, but um, you know, you had that the story about like you know Zippy the chimp, and I don't mean to, I don't mean that's just to remind you. I don't mean to make light of it, but right. can you talk a little bit about that concept when it's very very dangerous to, you know, to for a for a seller to just like you know, here's Johnny. Uh, you know, when it's time to, when it's time to turn technical and how some people get kind of lazy. Could you uh, talk about what you mean by that? John McMahon. <laughs> well, I don't think that they're just somebody that shows up at the demo and then shows up at the POC and, and never in between. Um, I think when you have a mindset that the SE is part of your team and a close partner of yours, you're involving them at every step of the way, discovery, as John talked about, and trying to formulate in discovery, you're trying to formulate what the decision criteria is going to be down mm -hmm. the road for that POC and start to formulate what that POC criteria might be even earlier on. So you're not giving a five-hour demo and you're just hoping that something's sticking to the wall. You're giving a demo that's more pointed towards the specific use case and the sum of the pain, because you don't understand all the gain yet, because you don't understand all the pain. 
And you're trying to formulate that stuff with your SE so that you can give a more precise demo so you can get further in the sales process and eventually nail that decision criteria. So as John said, you know, you don't have to be on, they don't have to be on every call. It doesn't have to be a four-legged sales call. But I think you have to keep them constantly involved as to what you hear. Where are we driving this? What should we do on the next one? What do you think I should say at the next meeting? When do you think I should pull you back in? Those types of things. Um, it's a constant communication with your SC is the way that I think the more experienced people, more successful sales reps that I've seen do it. Yeah, it is. And as someone who's also been on the other side of the table as an IT executive slash CIO, you know, when as a customer you see a finely tuned sales machine of an AE and SE working together, you know, they're almost like a married couple finishing each other's sentences. I mean, that, that is professionalism, like beautiful, right? So you know, that's how you want the relationship to be. And there's an incredible amount of trust that goes into that kind of relationship. You know, when you go do your thing, I'll go do my thing, and we'll meet a couple of times during the day, and we'll debrief, and we'll you know, build strategy on the fly and do something else. So you know, there has to be that trust. Between yeah. yeah. Let's, uh, let's let's summarize a little bit on this, because I, I think uh, both of you guys just made great points. There's a rhythm, and the rhythm is recognizable when it goes well by a customer. Um, and there is a... Um, there's kind of like a, not a swim lane, because I don't want to say somebody can't pass over, but there's like two main things that are happening, right? There's discovery, identifying pain. There is, uh, there's, you know, the pain attached to what the gain could be. And in that conversation, there has to be a discussion about what are the technical required capability, required capabilities that are, you know, required for us to, for the customer to make those pains go away. And I've always thought, I, I want your thoughts on this, both of you, but I've always thought this for me, when I was leading sales teams, this for me was always a great way for me to bring my SEs into the conversation because I would like to empower them and say, look, you're kind of our, you're the last mile for us on this conversation with the customers that relates to decision criteria that is heavily influenced by our technical differentiation. And it's in the customer's language and it's good for the customer. I always found that the SEs, when I could empower them, I wasn't letting the AEs off the hook, but I was always empowering the SEs. I was calling them the, you know, they're the last mile. Give me your thoughts on that. Oh, agreed. I mean, I never believed there's you know, such a thing as standalone technical discovery and standalone business discovery. Um, it's like the twin strands of DNA, right? It's the helix and they're the constantly intertwining with each other and sometimes you know, one is heavily biased and you know if it's a tech you're talking to a bunch of other techies but ultimately you'll still get something that has to do with time people and money and bing you're over on the the business side and vice versa uh, so you know, certainly you want the se to come in and map the you know the technology back to solving the business problems Sometimes that SE might be in a better position than the AE and sometimes not to actually help uncover those business problems, uh, the yeah. pains and the gains um, than the AE. And that's where the two of them need to figure out who's got the particular skills in that area, who's got subject matter expertise. And again, that, that's, the, that's the beauty of the AE-SE relationship is you know, it goes backwards and forwards depending upon you know, who you're speaking to, what the topics are and, and everything else. I think what we're leaving out of this too that needs to be on top of this is that 
when you work closely with your SE and let's say you're in, you know, discovery and then you're in the demo phase, this is where after the meeting, you can go outside with your SE and really debrief on the meeting to understand like who in that room could be the potential champion and who could be the potential technical champion. And why did they ask that question? And what does that mean by that question? Why did they like, maybe the salesperson doesn't understand. Well, why did they ask that technical question? I don't really understand. What did that mean to you? And why did this, is that meaningful that the person asked that? Does that mean that they truly understand our technology and they're, they're five layers deep? you know, versus other people in the room that are asking superficial questions. I really find that that's where the partnership or the mindset between the SE and the sales rep really can start to uncover who in this sale, not only what they need and the criteria and the process, but who in this process can help us move the ball. Yeah, and those, that's incredibly wise words there, John. If people did take one thing from this podcast, it might be that concept. Uh is yeah i mean most sales teams after a call will do a tactical debrief and they'll talk about next steps and you know big things that came up but actually getting down to that finer detail and here's a tip for some of the reps if you're if you're struggling to do a debrief with your sales engineer try the good old-fashioned management consulting you know t3 b3 n3 so what are the top three things we did in the call we should do next time B3, what are the bottom three things we should never ever do again? And you'll strangle me if I do. And then N3 is what are the next three things we should do if we're in this similar situation? And SEs love that because it gives them structure, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you can talk about why was this question asked and everything else. If you then go into that T3, B3, N3, and blitz through it in like five minutes, um, make sure it goes both ways. It's an incredible debrief. I mean, I, I don't know what your data shows, but we've been told by... SE populations. So this is not one-sided data that somewhere around 60% of sales calls do not have any kind of formal debrief after they are made. And to me, that's criminal, right? That is criminal. That's one of my pet peeves. I used yeah. to get very upset if I was on a sales call with the SE and the sales rep, and then we hop in an Uber or a cab and everybody reaches for their phone to look at their phone. I would get like, wait a second just made a six-legged sales call. What could be more important in the world than that sales call that we just made and taking the time to debrief properly before you jump on your phones? Because I think a lot of them just hop in the cab or the Uber, go to the next call or back to the office and never truly debrief of exactly what happened. And to John's point, what should happen next? What did we do right? What did we do wrong? What should we do next? I've always yeah, found, yeah, yeah, that's really good, guys. I've always found one other thing I'd like to, uh, I'd like to highlight here before we uh, move on to like, you know, utilization. Like, how can leaders utilize these great human beings, not resources, these great technical human beings? Um, but I've always found that SEs have a wonderful ability, should they choose to accept it, and if the if the if the scenario is right, that they can be great teachers and John care and John McMahon's infinite wisdom. He hired me to a software company, mm -hmm. highly technical software company. We were selling software to, um, you know, solve engineering problems. I wasn't an engineer. I was coming from Xerox. I'd never sold software before. And McMahon thought it was a good idea that I come to the company and lead a sales team 
that's that I had never sold the software that I'm asking them to sell. So um, actually, it worked out pretty well after a while. But I just want to tell this little story because I really there's a guy out there who's probably listening. I hope his name is Kirk Colts. And if you said, you know, you do, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. Well, he was actually a rocket scientist. He, he was. He worked for NASA before coming to PTC. And I want to give people some spirit out there. Here I am leading. And now this is not uncommon. So, you know, people move to, you know, move to other companies. They don't understand the product and they, you know, they're trying to figure out how to add value or what have you. And this is what I did with, with the application, uh, excuse me, what we call them application engineers. So I'll just say set SE to stay on this topic. We typically had to travel in North Carolina to some of these manufacturing locations. And it took about kind of like two hours you know, it took like two hours to get up there sometimes or an hour to get up there and an hour drive back or whatever. And what what I found extremely helpful, number one, I didn't act like I knew what I was doing because I didn't. And I would ask the um, I would ask Kirk, I'd say, hey, Kirk, um, tell me what mechanic. It was a highly technical product. It was a stress, you know. Uh, uh, stress analysis uh, product. You had to have like a doctorate to use it or whatever. And I was like, tell me what problems does that solve? Like, and what do those problems look like? Cause I didn't understand any of it. And the beautiful thing is on the way up to the call, he would teach me everything I need to know about that product and those, that scenario. And we'd go and we have a call and, you know, do the call, whatever it was, do the debrief, whatever. And then on the way back, I would, teach him what he taught me. And so I want to give people spirit out there. There are some unbelievably great technical human beings in these companies. And if you're feeling, you know, shy about the product, if you're not quite getting it, if you're not, you know, some of the greatest teachers I've found have been um, some SEs and SEs instead of, you know, a lot of times your compensation relies on these you know, on these people that don't understand the product or what have you. And if you take the time to do the coaching and development and you don't look at it as a burden, obviously the company, it's the company's responsibility. But if you can, if you can enable that through your interaction, I've just found unbelievably great relationships. That was 30 years ago, I think. Um, and uh, I still consider Kirk Colts, Kirk Colts, one of the one of the greatest human beings that I've ever worked with. And it's because he taught me something. Yeah. And I would say that works both ways. I mean, if I think back in my career, certainly in the earlier days, there's a host of salespeople and sales managers that I worked with who, you know, they taught them about technology. They taught me about sales and negotiation and personalities and, you know, contracts and everything. Um, you know, so, you know, call out to, you know, people like Mark Schnabel and Frank Fallon. Uh, they taught me that as I was, as I was growing up. So it certainly goes both ways. And that's again, the teaming, right? I like that. So let's sum this one thing up here on this, on this section we were talking about on the, the partnership, the true partnership. And, you know, I, I it's just sticking in my head a little bit is that SEs love to be utilized, not used. Is that fair? <laughs> yes. I think that's, that's fair. Um, All right. And they, and they love to know why. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, I'm, I'm still in this section. Sorry, I didn't transition yet. So I want to talk a little bit more about, we we brushed over a little bit. We talked about this dash to the demo. 
Mm-hmm. And I want us to really, really explain what we mean by that. So dash to the demo, pros and cons, parts of the sales process that are incredibly important before you do the dash to the demo or what have you. Let's 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 give our audience some more meat there. Sure. Now, there are obviously corner cases, right? So if you're a, you know, a single product company, you're always you know, selling the same thing to the same type of people, you know, there's exceptions there. But what we call the dash to the demo is really when the sales team is like, well, no, what do we do next? I don't know. Let's show them a demo, right? So it is the next required stage in the sales process, whatever it is. And if you move into the demo stage, you know, and it's when we're investing you know, some time and thought into it, and you don't know, again, enough about your customer to be able to target that demo, that's what we call the dash to demo. And usually that demo is a, unless you get lucky, it's usually a waste of time. So you're not moving into a, an appropriately qualified opportunity. Um, now, if you've done some discovery beforehand, um, and that could have been a separate meeting, it could have been the first 30 minutes of the call before you get to the demo, then um, the sales engineer is going to feel far more and certain and confident so when they go into you know outbound mode which might be demo presentation whiteboard whatever uh, they can nail whatever they're presenting and bring it back using customers language to what they learned about in the earlier call and that's what you want to have happen if as a sales team you don't give your sales engineer the opportunity to do that then you're asking them just to shoot in the dark and maybe they'll get lucky and the good ones you know are luckier than the not so good ones uh, you know because they've got that wisdom and experience uh, but you know, the more the more prepared you can make the the se the better off you're going to be so you know the dash to demo doing that just because it's the next step in the sales cycle uh, yeah, not always the best idea no not at all and, and you're not doing yourself a favor as a sales rep either because if you don't if you haven't nailed really you know, what the customer needs, what the use case is, some of the pain points, you re- you're really leaving your, your SE out to dry because, and you're doing yourself a disservice because they're going to demo whatever they need to demo just to demo the product because they're trying to make something stick and they're trying to probably ask some questions to me so they don't have to do a five-hour demo. But, you know, at the end of the day, the customer is going to say, you know, it doesn't do what we need it to do. And the reason it doesn't do what they need it to do is because you missed you never yeah. took the time to really understand what they need and see if you can align your product to that need. So you did yourself a disservice by not preparing yourself and the SE for the demo. It is. It's the, you know, stop me when you see something you like type right. presentation. Yeah. Right? Well, right. I, used to, I, I have been on sales calls where I got yeah. called in and we were going to make the first sales call on the customer. And we walk in with the SE and the rep and what does the customer say? Show us a demo. And they get ready to show the demo. And I jump in and try to do some discovery by saying, well, you know, if we just do a demo, it's going to take five hours. Do you guys have five hours? And they say, no, we don't have five hours. Great. Can we start to ask a little, some questions before we do a demo? Now you're doing, you know, discovery on the fly and the customer's got like an hour and they're like, Hey, I don't really have a lot of time for you to do discovery right now. And they keep pushing you to go in towards a demo. And then when you do, it's just, a, it's a waste of time. Because you you don't really understand exactly what the bullseye is. Where's the target? What am I what yeah. am I shooting for here? It is, and that's where actually John coming right back to what we talked about at the start. The use of stories comes in is that quite often you can diffuse that by telling a story. You know, well, no, if you walk into Best Buy and say I want to buy a TV, 
right? They're not immediately going to walk you down the aisle and say, stop me when you see something you like. They're going to say, well, where's it going to go? What size are you thinking? You know, if you walk into a tailor and ask for a suit, if you go see your doctor and say, I've got a headache, you know, they're going to ask you questions. So I often try and encourage, you know, SEs to frame it that way, as in, you know, you just give me a bit more information, it's a trade, and I'll give you a way better answer. Yeah, let's stay, let's stay here for a second, because this is critical. Um, The reason why this happens, I believe, is that um, why a customer is pushing somebody into a demo is because the the sales team, when I say sales team, the partnership, you're not adding enough value with your discovery. And, and, you know, they, they either they were unprepared, the customers unprepared, they thought they were going to see a demo, you're not adding value in the questions you're asking, I don't see where these are going. So whenever you feel like there's a couple of things that I like to tell people, first thing is when somebody says, hey, you know, I thought we were going to see a demo. You know, one of the easy transitions is, Mr. Mr. Customer, I promise you, we're going to show you the technology, I promise you. Um, what I'd like to do is to make sure that what we're showing you is exactly what's important to you. So we have a, a few questions that we want to ask you just to make sure that what we're demonstrating to you is relevant. And I've never seen that uh, formula uh, equal failure. Let's do, let's stay on it for a second. And even when the customer continues to push back and they're like, well, I really want to see the demo. There's an old saying that says, um, you know, uh, words that come from the heart. Uh, words that are spoken from the heart enter the heart of all who hear them. And what I mean by that is, is if you're just honest and you can feel the customers being frustrated, you guys aren't doing a good job and we're not doing a good job in discovery. Something's going on. You just call it like it is and say, Mr. And Mrs. Customer, I feel like we're frustrating you. I feel like we're yeah. kind of, you're wanting to push to the uh, technology and we're still asking you questions. Can you just give us a little feedback? And I have found that those things, just calling it out, Normally, when you do that, a customer will call the score. He'll tell you exactly, he or she will tell you exactly what's going on. Even yeah, that said, definitely. you're still doing it too late. You want to do this, John said, you want <laughs> yeah. to do it way before that. Yeah. 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 Let's, um, so, so let's talk a little bit about, um, uh, we've talked about, uh, you know, we've talked about preparation. We've talked about debrief. We're talking about, um, you know, really, this dash to the demo or point of view, this is like the most expensive. Typically, it could be like a proof of concept or a point of view. It can be the most expensive part of your sales campaign of your of your um, your sales expense. So um, we're really talking about qualification. Johnny McMahon, what, what I'd like you to do is just, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, somebody says, hey, we're getting ready to do a demo. Just give us the kind of standard that, you know, you kind of highlight in your book, the qualified sales leader, you know, what qualification do we have to have in place before, what would you expect before we even do a demo? And then John Kerr, I'd like you to fill in. Well, let Johnny Kerr do it first. Okay. He's Johnny the, Kerr, you go first and then Johnny Mac, you fill he's in. The go- he's the guest. He goes first. Yeah. You're, you're right. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a sales engineer. I'm used to the salespeople jumping in front of me. <laughs> <it's all right. laughs> Guilty as charged. Yeah. <laughs> so, Again, I, I come back to this concept of business value discovery um, in that, yeah, you're going to ask the sales engineer to demo something. Um, I always tell sales engineers, especially the younger ones, you know, the best question to ask your AE is not 
what do you want me to do in this demo? But no, what do you want to have happen as a result of delivering this demo? Right? So yeah. what's the behavior outcomes from it? Um, so as input to that, you need you know, the key business issues, right? at least the top three. Uh, you know, what's the evidence of those? What's the outcome? Um, if the customer can tell you, to how, how would they know it's been fixed? You know, what does future state actually look like? Uh, and then it's your job as the SE to map, you know, those benefits the customer wants, whether they are the, the, the gains or the pains, back to the features that you have in the product, which then turn into the advantages, right? What does it do? And then the SE, together with the rep, drives home the benefits, which is you know, what it means to the customer, right? I mean, it's good old fab, right? Features, advantages, benefits. But, but get, getting that flow and that circle is so important. And if the SE doesn't have that, then it's, unless they're doing, you know, an idea generation demo or something like that, a curiosity demo, it's really hard for them to hit bullseye. Love so yeah. key business issues. So you give the SE the input, and then it's their job to figure out what is it they should show and demo, validate that with the rep, if the rep knows enough about the technology, and then away you go. Let's talk about something else that happens, and I used to really dislike it, is when the SE is doing a demo, and a lot of times when they're doing a demo, it depends upon the you know configuration of the room, but many times their back is to the audience because mm -hmm. they're looking at a screen and customer wants to see the screen. And what has happened with the sales rep? They go in the back of the room and they start flipping through TikTok, Twitter and Instagram, <laughs> really bad. I mean, you're you're in that room to discover. Do you have the right people in the room? You're trying to get reactions to whatever your SE is showing. It's a meeting to really qualify that entire room and everyone in it, and help your SE with if he shows something or she shows something, and you don't get the reaction that you should be getting, especially if you're showing one of your key differentiators and everybody's yawning, you may want to jump in and try to understand why. Do they not understand it? Did my SE not explain it the right way? You know, why is that not getting the reaction that I want to get? And you're not going to get it if you're in the back of the room flipping through TikTok and, and Instagram and Twitter. So that's kind no. of like a pet peeve for me where you just say, okay, we're going to do a demo. You put the SE on the stage and then you go in the back of the room and do nothing really bad yeah. that that is the character caricature of uh the sales rep that most SEs after they've had a few drinks will uh bring out and, and talk about <laughs> that um but you know I, again it works both ways so you know, whoever is on stage the other person needs to be looking at yeah. the room whether it's physical or virtual you know, trying to read the audience you know who took a note when you said something what's the body language you know what's the interaction between the the people um, and that's that's critical and also, you you can't, as the rep, let the SE talk for too long. Um, you know, there's a reason you, know, you watch. You know, I watched my Eagles lose badly last night, right? But there's a main commentator and there's a color commentator uh, who comes in and says something and maybe redirects the, the commentary. You know, that's the way the SE and the AE need to work. Is the AE can come in and make course corrections if necessary, you know, gentle nudges uh, with the SE, and vice versa. And that's the teamwork. So yeah, if you're at the back of the room, you no. Know, Checking out TikTok. You know, in my days, when I first started, you had the little yellow, you know, was it the little pink, you know, while you were out messages that people were going through. Um, yeah, you can't, you can't do that. You have to be watching the audience and seeing what's going on.
Yeah. So, yeah the same on the POV well or the POC, John. Like, there's times where you've seen like a sales rep, it's time for the POC or the POV, and the sales rep leaves the building. And it's going to be a two day POV. Yeah. They leave the building and leave it all to the SE. No, you're supposed to stay there with that SE. You don't know who's going to come into that room. You don't know if a C-level person is going to come into the room. You don't know if a potential champion is going to come in the room. You don't know what type of questions your SE is going to get hit with. Are they business questions? Are they all technical questions? You have to stay in that room. You have to have the mindset of a partnership and a teammate, you know, with your SE if you really want to succeed. You do. So if you're still doing physical on-site POVs, you know, a lot of them are now getting done up in the, the cloud. If you're still doing physical on-site POVs, you know, the rep needs to be there. I mean, maybe not you know, 24 by 7, but they need to be there enough to handle all those things that you just spoke about, John, again, yeah. the, the teamwork. So the SE can focus on what the SE is supposed to be doing, uh, you know, which is driving towards success criteria and satisfaction of those so the customer will proceed to that next step, right, which you hope is, you know, signing a contract or ramping up. Um, Let's talk know. a little bit about that. Cause I think one of the things we're leaving out right now is this, um, is this qualification piece that, um, you know, if we're doing, if it, the POV and demos are the most expensive part of the sales process, typically um, we should have champions. We, I want to put some, I want to put some guardrails around this. We should have champions. So if we're doing a, we're doing a demo or we're doing a proof of concept, a proof of value, and you don't have a champion, it, you're really, really in trouble. We should have economic buyer commitment, meaning that if we show them the gain, we should be demonstrating the gain. And if they signed up for the gain and we can demonstrate the gain, then there's a commitment to move forward. There's nothing worse for an SE, I don't think, than doing a bunch of demos and proof of concepts to tire kickers that's like a kiss of death for a sales organization would you agree with that john oh it it, it absolutely is it, it's so frustrating and just kills morale um you know and throwing a couple of random rfps as well they have to complete and it, it's a way to just totally you know suck life out of your, your se teams yeah. there um, and so yeah i mean P povs are just incredibly expensive uh you know whether they are physical or or virtual uh, you know, some some companies use them to drive sales, and others don't. I mean, when, when one of my clients ran this data, and they discovered that um, they had what was it, an eighty nine percent conversion rate on their proof of concepts for a, a certain region and a certain product, which is like way higher than anywhere yeah. else in the entire world. Yeah. And 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 a new you know VP of sales comes in, looks at this data, and goes, "Let's do more POCs." And the SEs are going, no, 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 no. The reason we've got this high success rate is we do this serious qualification about who actually is entitled to do a POC. Uh, you know, if you throw more numbers on the, you know, the, the top line, it's not necessarily going to reflect in the bottom line. So, you know, that the qualification is important. Um, you know, whatever you use, a medic, med pick, or something like that. Um, you know. Very good. But again, for, for any SEs who are listening, you know, the worst thing you can do is make the rep requalify the deal to you. Because right? that poor rep has already qualified it to their boss, right? They've qualified it to their VP at the last Q QBR. They've probably qualified it to their spouse or their partner at home. You know, if the rep then has to requalify that deal to the SE, that's going to build some friction as well. So you you need to tread lightly there as an SE if you're making the rep requalify the deal you know, in front of you before you're willing to you know go do a POC. So you know that's a 
like that. another friction point. Yeah. I like that. The last part on this is this, um, and we've talked about it, but let's round it out a little bit. We're talking about champions, economic buyers, mm-hmm. qualification, uh, you know, technical criteria before we go into it. I don't care if we're going to demo. I don't care if we're doing proof of concept. I, this is me, so I'd like some feedback. Um, I have to. We have to look at that technical criteria and say, so what? So what we're demonstrating, so what? And if we can answer the so what, well, that's that solves the problem for the customer, and that's highly differentiable for us. So that's a really good idea for us to do. A lot of times, there's not enough time. There's like these canned demos. And people are saying, okay, we're going to go to a demo or we're going to go to a proof of concept or whatever. But what are we demoing? What are we proving? And if we're not proving and demoing things that show our technical criteria highly differentiated or the customer's technical criteria highly differentiated by our capabilities, then we're wasting our time. That's really important. It is. So in our workshops, we talk about... um, we call them three wonderful metrics. So it's cost, revenue, and risk. Right? So ultimately, you know, a few government agencies and nonprofits aside, almost every technology purchase over a few thousand dollars is driven by one or more of those. So it's, you know, how how can you help your customer make money? How can you help your customer save money? How can you help your customer drive risk out of their environment, um, either their you know, IT environment or even their personal environment? Um, if you can't link your technology back to at least one of those, then you are never going to get the deal. And that's at the higher level. And then we say, okay, then if you're dealing with individual contributors or first line managers, you reduce it down to time, money, or people. So what are you doing that's going to save somebody time? What are you doing that's going to save the company money? Or what are you doing that's going to enable them to do this with four people instead of 12? Save that. And they're fungible. They're all exchangeable. Um, so unless you are, a, you know, unless you're an SE with a room of you know 20 propeller heads doing a highly technical presentation, if you don't hit one of those three economic, you know, talking points, uh, you're wasting your time. And the decision makers or the people who recommend to decision makers are just going to walk out of the room and go, eh, you know, nothing happens. So talk about a little bit here, Johnny McMahon. You're always getting me grounded on dude it's not enterprise licenses we move from enterprise licenses to subscription to consumption mm-hmm. and there's this there's this idea that the the we have all this conversation about what the SE can do for us upfront but post sales will you talk a little bit about that john john mcmahon john mcmahon no, yes no i already <laughs> made that mistake the yeah, last so. for john care and then you fill in <laughs> So, so no for cons- nowadays with consumption, you know, you might book a deal for a million dollars, you know, one point two million, but now the customer has to burn that down. If they don't burn those credits down, just because you sold the deal doesn't mean anything anymore. It's not like you sold the deal and you can walk away and they have to pay a perpetual license or they they you know signed up to you know for a one year annual subscription. Now you sign up a consumption deal. It's a million dollar deal. Congratulations. Now you got to get them to use it. If they don't use it, you have nothing and you're not getting paid. So this is where your SE that's helped you do a really good job of understanding the use case, your differentiators, how they apply and how they can seek the gain. That's where that SE now has also built some relationships, tight relationships with the technical people inside the account 
can truly understand what's really going on in this post-sales world and why are they burning down credits or not burning down credits. So I think the the SE, at least in this new consumption world, is becoming more and more important in the post-sales world also. Yeah. If you think back, you know, a few decades ago, we were you know, grandly called pre-sales engineers. Yeah. And except, right. and except for a few specialist units in some software companies now, you know, it's far more than that. Because, yeah, you know, if it's the very first deal in a company, you are a pre-sales engineer, then you get the deal. Then you either have to burn down those credits or you want to ramp up the customer. You know, they're using 10000 a month, but you want to get them up to 15, 18, 22, 25000 um, so that role of the pre-sales engineer becomes post-sales, becomes customer success manager, and the role itself kind of broadens if you want the same people to stick with the client and you know, take down the consumption, build up the, the ramping. So it's the new model. So it's why companies you know, historically like Salesforce or Adobe who have done you know, land and expand have been so successful because that's been their strategy for a long, long time. I mean, they, they got there before anybody else. Yeah. And your SE can help, you know, they have that relationship. They can help understand where their next project is or other people inside the account that the technical champion knows is also looking at this technology and help the salesperson branch off to other parts of the organization to, yeah. to expand. Yes. And, and here's the data point on that is in the average tech company, the tenure of the sales engineering team is about two and a half times that of the account execs. Wow, I never thought, you know, as soon as you were saying it, I thought that's that's so true. Yeah. If an account exec's been there for 24 months, the SE's been there for five years on average. So the SE knows more people, um, knows where the bodies are buried, as we like to say, um, and can actually be the guide for a new rep as they come in or a new strategy. Uh, So again, in this new consumption ramp model that we have, that's another reason the SE becomes so important, you know, just like, unintentional consequences just because of their their tenure and the company and the account. Yeah. I used to also, you know, it's a, it's kind of the same subject, but I used to like to go to the SEs and say, you know, how are we doing, how do you think we're set up on this POV that's coming up? You know, what, what, what is your gut on this? Do you think, you know, we're lined up to win this thing, you know, same thing on, you know, going into the, you know, what's the, the criteria before we even have agreed to do a POV and you can get some really interesting feedback from the SEs. They they're going to give you their perspective, um, especially if they come to trust you and know there's no penalties associated yes. with whatever their opinion is, and it's not going to spoil the relationship that they have with their salesperson. So, you can get some really interesting data from them, is what I found. Uh, you can. It, it's the the shadow forecast uh, we call it. And there are a number of tech companies now that actually ask the first line SE leaders to forecast what they see, and they then match that up with what the first line sales managers see. Um, and they ask them not to collaborate too much. And usually, um, and it's kind of the law of large numbers, the SE team is actually more accurate than the sales team in you know, getting the forecast at a large roll-up scale. Um, so not necessarily in a district, but nationally, um, they tend to to nail it. Because you're right, the, the SEs, if they feel you know, there's no repercussions, they're trusted, uh, they're often, I think, a little more realistic and don't quite have the happy ears that some account execs have. Uh, and you gotta, of course, they're getting input from their technical friends. So. Yeah, and you got to put them in realistic situations, like yeah. stuff that 
stuff that is like they're empowered. And I always like to go to, you know, they always had, I felt like SEs always had a really good understanding of what power and influence. They understood what that looked like in the room. Once it was explained to them, they understood what that looked like. Are we demoing? Are we getting commitments from people that you think uh, have the authority? Just, just give me your thought on it. And SEs typically have a really, really good uh, idea about that. The next thing is, I would always ask them about the criteria. Is this, are we set up to win? And uh, and again, we've mentioned that a bunch of times, but I want people to really have some spirit around that, is that, no, I'm not saying sellers say, well, when it comes to decision criteria, that's not me, that's the SC. That's not what I mean. But you have great collaboration to make sure that you've got um, you've got criteria that you can uh, that you can win against. Uh, so um, let's talk really quick. I want to. This is a huge dilemma that happens, and you said five years and one year, and I'm going to call it the dilemma of compensation. What about the SE? And it always, it's, I'm sure it happens to every SE at some point in their career. They're like, I can, I can, sometimes it's because of the poor execution of the seller. They say, I can be a seller. John, what is your advice to SEs that want to make a transition at good and bad? So you are right, John, in that probably every SE in the world has thought that at some point is like, I can do that. Most SEs don't fully understand the complexity of what it means to be an account exec. And they see you know, the, the 10 to 15% of the iceberg that's above the water and not all the hard work, um, both physical and emotional, that the account exec has to go with that's underneath the surface. Um, you know, but the, the, the good SEs do. We, we've seen about a one in three success rate for mm. SEs who move over into sales. A success being you're still in the job after two years and you've hit your number after that two years um, and, and your spouse or partner has not wanted to kill you. Right, That's the uh, <laughs> <laughs> all, all of which are important. Um, and so that's about the success rate. If you're an SE who wants to go over into sales, normally it's better if you go over either into an overlay position or into a farmer type position as opposed to, you know, hunter killers. Right, you know, you know, new logos type accounts, and that normally works better for the SEs. Where SEs have to adjust is the fact that your technical knowledge is essentially worthless at this point. Because uh, two months ago you'd say something, and everyone in the room would nod and believe you. Now you're a salesperson, and you say the same thing, and it's still absolutely true. And people look at your SE to see if you no, know, he or she is nodding their head instead. Um, and you have to get used to no as well. Uh, and I so love that. I love Certainly that. The first time I, you know, came quote a, a business development rep at Oracle many, many years ago, uh, that concept of dealing with no, like I hated it. Yeah. So you know, each. <laughs> There's, hey, <laughs> let, let's. Like you're hitting it so. You're hitting it so well. Um, let's talk about a couple of things here to, for people to consider. And I'm not saying they're you're not good at it. You're good at it. Or what have what I always said when, when one of the technical resources wanted to or, or technical people wanted to move over into sales, I would probe in a couple of areas. First of all, I wanted to understand how they sound because you get delegated to those that you sound like. Yes. And if you sound technical, you're going to get delegated to technical people, which is fine. But if you don't have the ability to move from technical people to business people, you're going to struggle with that. So delegated to those that you sound like yeah. is a 
critical concept to dig into. And then like you just said, John, I call the no part. I call that the indignity of the close. I really would. <laughs> I really would it make is. my technical uh, folks uh-huh. think about the indignity of the close because the data says that's one of the big differences between a seller and a um, and an SE is the indignity of the close. Uh, it, it's it's not as painful for the seller for some reason to hear no or to go back and say okay just they said no as an opportunity um but those are two concepts that if you're going to move over those are two concepts i think you really got to check yourself at are you ready for being for being talking to people and not getting delegated to technical people and are you ready for the indignity to close well, like, I, think I like that yeah. phrase. I'm, I'm, I'm going to borrow that. Yeah. There's actually a chapter in book because we get asked this so often. Uh, moving into sales, it's chapter 28 in Mastering Technical Sales. Uh, so you're, so you're holding up crossing the book to the dark side. You're holding um, up the book, Mastering Technical so Sales, the Sales Engineering book, Handbook. Yeah, let's... fourth edition. Yeah, chapter 28. It actually covers this. Awesome. Um, because we get asked it so often. Yeah. I think you know the other thing that um, a lot of people don't see. Um, it's what, and I'm, and we're talk, talking about the good sales reps is how much prospecting they had to do, especially uh, in the larger accounts yeah. to really hit on the person and the group that they almost knew, like this one person definitely is going to be my potential champion and then got that group together and then brought their SE in for the demo. And they did a lot of discovery on their own and some with the SE but they did so much homework before that SE sometimes sh- showed up. And the second part is where the really good sales rep shine is in that final presentation and closing meeting where they basically have choreographed what people are going to say. They have a really strong champion, the champion they've role played with them upside down one way to the other before the economic buyer meeting. And in the final presentation meeting, they know the roles and responsibilities of everybody in that meeting and what's going to be said and what shouldn't be said because they've role played it with everybody. And you see sometimes not just SEs, but some executives from corporate to come in and think, wow, that was the easy close. Like I just came into that meeting and in a half an hour, the customer wanted to buy a couple million dollars worth of software, man, these sales jobs are really easy. What they didn't see is all the work and all the choreography that happened in the background. And that's what I think a lot of times, you know, people just don't, they don't see that stuff and know how much work and effort went into that. Because to build those types of relationships where you can role play with your customer and control the champion, that's a lot of work. It's really, really hard. I, I remember one of the reps that we worked with and she would actually work with the champion and the champion would sit down and demo a tiny bit of our software to um, you know, their own peers. Wow. And how, how cool was that, right? And it took some coordination with the uh, the team. Yeah. Um, they say, oh, yeah, this is so easy. Anybody can use it. You know, Sarah, you want to come try it and where to go? So Perfect. Yeah. Hey, John, I want to make sure that... Uh, um, you know, we've talked about the book, Mastering Technical Sales, the Sales Engineering Handbook. I think you're on the fourth edition now, and the and the author is John Care. Uh, mastering, we're talking to John Care, Mastering Technical Sales, the Sales Engineering Handbook. But we haven't talked much about your company. What's the name of the company? What does it do? How do you do what you do? Uh, give us that. Sure. 
So the name of the company, surprisingly enough, is Mastering Technical Sales. Uh, and <laughs> we, we, we are part of a larger company called Up to Speed. Um, so we merged. Sure. They're a partner of ours. Yes, they are. Um, we merged about seven, eight months ago. So my company deals pretty much solely with sales engineers all around the world uh, in an area that we call professional skills. Right. So the, the phrase soft skills is banned because you know, no one gives you money for soft skills, but they'll give you money for professional skills. So sales tip right there. And so everything that an SE does in their everyday life, whether it's business value discovery, demos, presentations, working with executives, answering questions, whiteboarding, improv, negotiation, everything, um, we deliver workshops around that, both physically and virtually, um, all over the world. So we have, I think, 25 facilitators, eight or nine different languages. And that's what we do. So we cater to you know the, the technical side of the sales team and work with them in developing their professional skills again through workshops videos and the books and you have and one your thing. website is your website mastering technical sales so the website also. is yes the longest website address in the world www.masteringtechnicalsales.com yes good and you have something you mentioned it we didn't really talk about it that much but you want to just uh you want to just plug the business value discovery that you teach sure uh, so the one of, so we teach about 30 different workshops, um, some for individuals, some for managers. Our foundational class is called Business Value Discovery, right. which, again, to close, close the loop, is that yeah. the art of patience in discovery. So it teaches sales engineers how to uncover the business drivers and then how to link those business drivers back to the technology so you can make your client feel that you are uniquely positioned to satisfy you know, their requirements. So that is business value discovery. It's a very lightweight sales process that fits on top of anything the sales force might be using. Right? SEs never drive the sales process, and it's always driven by you know the, the VP of sales, the CRO. You know, a new one comes in, picks a new sales process, and everyone learns it. Uh, business value discovery is a lightweight veneer that just sits on top of that. So it's basically solution selling, value selling for the sales engineer. Because no, you, you never ever want to have an SE sit in the back of sales training because they'll just, you know, they'll be the one on their phones doing TikTok and falling asleep. So. <laughs> yeah, reverse so, the so that, that's, that's, you know, that's who we are and what we do. And it was born, um, if I could just tell a little story. Yeah. In a windowless ballroom in Atlanta over 20 years ago, where I was going through the fifth sales process training in my career. And I was an SE director. I had about 40 of my SEs in the room and there were 100 salespeople. It's a week-long training. And we get to Friday lunchtime and my brain is numb, my butt is numb. And I turned to one of the managers who, who reported into me and said, why are we here? It's a week's worth of training. Only a day and a half of it is relevant so to us. And we can absorb it three times faster than all these dumbass salespeople. So true. <laughs> and, and, and she just looks at me and says, no, if you're so smart, why don't you write a book about it? And I said, I will. And that's how the whole company got started. Wow, great story. I love that. Great story. So again, the book is Mastering Technical Sales, the Sales Engineering Handbook. What I love about your disposition, John, is like for your training, and especially when you said SE sitting in the back of the room, I see that happen so often. Um, your curriculum is created by sales engineers for sales engineers. And I think that's a really big differentiator. Yeah. Um, so you picked up one of our taglines, John. So uh, it's been a successful call. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, Johnny Care, you killed it. 
Um, we could, there's four or five other things I want to talk about, <laughs> yeah. um, but I know we asked you for an hour and we're a little bit over there and, and, uh, I just want to say thank you so much. I'm sure we'll have you on again, uh, cause this is such an important topic and it's such an important collaboration and partnership. Uh, just really grateful for you. Thank you. Great. Thanks for the invite. I, uh, I love doing this. So really appreciate it. Yeah. And John, I really loved it because you have a very, at least maybe because it agrees with my viewpoint on things, but you have a very realistic viewpoint of, you know, how sales should happen between the SE and the salesperson. So I really appreciate you and your, and your outlook or viewpoint on the, on the subject. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, thank you. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.